Hey there, Emily here, just letting you know that this episode of Bibliophiles is another installment in our Lit Period series, where we take you through a tour of Western literature's literary periods. That means, as always, we've already taken notes for you, so you can just sit back and enjoy the show. To download the notes, visit our website at www.centerforlit.com forward slash lit period seven. That's www.centerforlit.com forward slash L-I-T-P-E-R-I-O-D the number seven. We've also provided a link to them in the show notes for this episode. So without further ado, let's get started. Welcome to Bibliophiles, a production of the Center for Lit podcast network. In today's episode, the Center for Lit team continues its quest to discover the great ideas in books of every description, ancient classics to new bestsellers, epic poems to bedtime stories. We're glad you came along. We hope you find this discussion as provocative and inspiring as the books themselves. Want to join the great conversation? Stay tuned. You've come to the right place. Welcome back to Bibliophiles, everyone. Adam Andrews with you once again, joined, as always, by the Center for Lit crew, or at least part of it, my wife, Missy. Hi. And my daughter-in-law, Emily. Hello. How are you guys doing today? I'm doing well. Emily, be honest, how are you doing? Ian gave me his head cold, and so that's why I'm going to sound even funnier than I usually do. (laughs) You don't ever sound funny. (laughs) So if you have to hack up a lung during this episode, just go right ahead and do it. We will understand. I'm sure that's what our listeners want to hear. That's right. (laughs) So I thought we'd do a lit period episode today. Lit period and the period of literature that we're going to discuss is the modernist period. I don't think we've talked about that in this informal series. And so let's take up the modernists, shall we? Let's do. Um, is this your favorite period of all in Western literature? Let me ask that question to Missy first. Missy, this is your favorite period, isn't it? Are you serious? Does it look like I'm serious? Well, it's Sometimes I can't tell. Uh, you play the straight man pretty well. Um, you know, that's an interesting question because no, it's not my favorite, my favorite period for just reading. But it is one of my favorite periods to study ah, because the, very interesting. I think the drama, um, the psychological, the intellectual drama of the period is really compelling. Wow. I was not expecting that answer. That's going to be fun to flesh out as we go along. Uh, Emily, what about you? Do you like the modernists? Uh, I do. They are my favorite. And I'm very sad that I have a head cold on the day we're talking about them. <laughs> <laughs> you got you to gotta persevere. You got to go ahead and tell us what you think. Uh, by the way, we always talk, when, we, when we're doing Lit Period, we always talk about what and, and where and when and why and how of the, of the uh, period under study. So let's begin with those questions uh, with reference to the modernist period by saying when. When we talk about the modernist, what general date range are we talking about in terms of literature? Well, we're talking about the period from about World War I um, through the end of the 20th century, but 1914 and 1945 are some markers that are pretty frequently um, tossed around when we talk about modernists. Interesting. I have heard modernism periodized as beginning much earlier, maybe even in before the, the turn of the 20th century, like the 1880s up through 1945. I, I think the seeds of modernism were certainly present at the end of the 19th century, but World War One. I think, um, broke open some of those ideas that were being bantered around, in particular, um, the idea of objective reality, using objective reality to interpret as an interpreting device for reality. And um, World War I had the effect of fragmenting the nature of reality for a vast number of artists and thinkers of the period. It was so cataclysmic. And when you add to it um, kind of the after effects, the shock waves of Darwin's Origin of Species, for example, and the kind of materialistic, philosophical materialism that kind of gained um, ascendance, rose to ascendance after that, um, as we dismissed a need for a creator, philosophically speaking, um, in the scientific community, you know, scientific naturalism rooted, and then you get World War One and the devastation and senselessness of all the violence that occurred then, and you get a, a society that was reeling, kind of worldwide, reeling from the disaster and so, not really having any interpretive framework in order to pin themselves down and get their feet on the ground and start marching forward again. 
So you mentioned Darwin's Origin of Species, which of course was published in 1859. That mm-hmm. pushes the beginning, at least philosophically speaking, the beginnings of what would become modernism in intellectual life back into the 19th century, right? Well, what we're always talking about, you know, when you're looking at these intellectual movements, you can always see the seeds of what would eventually germinate in a previous movement of thinking, right? It takes some time for the effects of an idea to take root, flesh themselves out, and have their, have their consequences. Emily, when you think of modernist literature, how do you periodize it in your head? Well, I think that um, you're not wrong to say that, that Darwin seeds the ideas of it, but when I think about the time that came before World War I, uh, it, these, this breaking of morality and the dismissal of God I imagine, uh, I imagine old men arguing about it in coffee shops, and it's very dry and intellectual, and it's snobbish, and it's a, it is a luxury, as we talked about. Uh, G.K. Chesterton talked about in the essay that we read last time. But uh, when World War One struck, it humanized the questions mm-hmm. and added heart to the questions that these authors were asking, and so. When I think of modernism, I do think of World War One because Interesting. It's, what, it's what gives it meaning and context for the human experience. I um, okay, I'm going to yield to both of you, but I but before I do, uh, since we're still in the when question, I want to toss up the examples of the the writers of the 1880s and 1890s, like Jack London and. Uh, the writers of the early 20th century, uh, Upton Sinclair and guys like that, who are the the harsh naturalists, the harsh uh, kind of materialists that fed off of um, the the rise to prominence and ascendancy of evolution and started to look at the world in the, a, a way completely different from um, that that traditional, moral, religious worldview. Are those guys modernists in your view then, even though they wrote before World War I, or are they sort of harbingers of what was to come? I think of them as, as re- a part of the realist tradition, for sure, but I, I would call them harbingers of what's to come, myself. How about you, Emily? Yeah, I agree with that. I think that, I, I, I mean, I would love to get around to putting our finger on what it is that changes, but I don't think that they were a full incarnation of modernism at that point. Okay, very good. Then let's go ahead and say this. Let's periodize it World War I and following. Mm -hmm. And so we can consider, and we may consider postmodernism in a future episode, but for now, what comes after World War I is modernist in literature in a way that it wasn't before. And so we've answered the when question, but but let's let's jump then into into the what question. What is modernism and how do the works of literature and art that come after World War I differ from what came before? You know, what Emily was saying about how World War I humanizes um, the dilemma of the modernist generation, I think that's really true because it's hard for us looking back at history books to really understand the social breakdown that occurred as a result of World War I. And right on the heels of World War I, you get uh, in 1918, a worldwide flu epidemic. <laughs> you know, it was like adding insult to injury <laughs> to these people as they looked at the system and they thought, well, God is dead, <laughs> you know, in large part. And there was no longer any way to make sense of the disasters that, that they were beset by. So there was a lot of fragmentation and fear and this sense that... Um, Tradition, morality, everything that, all, all the things that moored us, you know, that, that held us together as a society, that they were yesterday and we were in a new age, a new mm. generation, um, that tradition was lost. And the problem was that there was really nothing to take its place. I think this is what characterized what a lot of literary critics call the modern temperament. The modern temperament. So you would say uh, um, uh, unease because old uh, old verities no longer hold, and there's nothing obvious to to replace them with. Is that is that what you mean by the modern temperament? Yeah, like the the interpretive framework had had um, dissolved, and they didn't find it um, useful anymore for a variety of reasons, including the, the philosophical temperament that followed in the wake of Darwinism. But then you add to those large wars and um, epidemics, industrialization, 
urbanization and immigration and start to think about the effects on the family, which had been largely centered on agriculture, but then trended towards the city and towards factories. Uh, you get this, this kind of mass exodus to the city and the cities aren't really planned to handle that kind of influx. And so you get overcrowding, poor sanitation, inadequate housing, and water supplies. And then um, in addition to that, the exploitation of workforces. Because, you know, every time you get a rise in technology, and this was a period where technology was burgeoning, you get the telephone, electricity, the phonograph, the record player, motion pictures, radio, the car. I mean, you can't imagine um, the effect that all of these technologies had all of a sudden on the culture. Technologies grow up, but the morals that grow up to govern our use of them, they're slow um, in, in taking root, right? It, it, there are always unintended consequences, unforeseen effects of these new technologies. And, you know, we kind of scurry about afterwards um, doing cleanup <laughs> as a society. So you get... Um, with no child labor laws, you get the exploitation of children, right? Not not to mention the exploitation of other workers in this kind of an environment. So, you know, I think... So you're describing the, work- the, the, the conditions that led to modernism yes. here. Well, yes. I mean, all of this stuff is going on in this time period. In addition to the large picture um, of these world wars and flus, you also get these local pictures because this is what's going on in society. These are the... Um, the seeds of what what creates this kind of angst in that particular period. Think about the the work of photojournalist Jacob Rees. Maybe you guys have seen some of his black and whites taken in the city of New York in the slums and in Hell's Kitchen and um, pictures of little urchins sleeping um, over uh, grates in the street trying to stay warm, things like that, um, that really do characterize that particular period in urban areas. But anyway, you know, when we talked about the technology, the growth of this technology, when you think about the record player, um, movies, motion pictures, and the radio in particular, you can see um, brand new pop culture, right? Pop culture is coming to be. And um, if you think about the vehicles of pop culture, you get words and images and sound, that's language, pictures, and music, right? And these became very influential and became a way that philosophy that generally concerned only the sophisticated with education all of a sudden had a vehicle to make it down to the common man. So Emily, again, out of the intellectual ash flicking, the pretentious guys, you know, talking about philosophy over over their um, their bourbon or whatever it was they drank at night, you know, <laughs> to, the, to the common guy, you know, just in the street listening to the radio or somebody who scrapes up enough um, pennies to go see the motion picture because the philosophies were beginning to be filtered through this new technology and were being imbibed by every man. So up grows this industry um, that includes art forms like literature in which that particular philosophy is disseminated. And what, Emily, how would you describe the philosophy? As uh, I mean, Mom's kind of kind of given us a, a a context for its its emergence. This context of upheaval, of war and disease, of industrialization and urbanization, of of alienation from old, comfortable, explanatory ideas and frameworks. That's the context of its emergence. How would you characterize? modernist philosophy itself. What is it? Well, I've been trying to think about how to distinguish it from realism. And I think what I've come up with thus far is that the realist looked at the world and said, this is bleak and described it for us that way. And, but they were still trusting their senses to, uh, to view the world in a correct manner. Whereas the modernist there's just an inherent doubt in ah. everything that the modernist looks at. And so they look at the world and there's almost a reluctance to describe it because they might not be seeing it correctly. Or at least a subjective description, right? You, you, were right. Saying, you were saying you think it's really cool, Emily? 
<laughs> yes, and I don't mean to sound godless. Do go but... on, you modernist. <laughs> well, I think that it leaves when doubt, there has to be doubt in order for faith to come in. And so, yes, they did the the truly modernist uh, philosophers substituted the self as the main vehicle of interpretation. But I would say that doesn't really come to play fully until postmodernism. Um, in, in modernism, there's uh, a tendency to even distrust yourself. And so when you distrust yourself, that's the place where the best questioning happens, uh, I think. So, okay. So wait, let me just summarize, and Missy, and you're up next. And I'm, I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm just going to moderate here. But um, it sounds like what you're saying in answer to my question, Emily, is that at the, at the root of the modernist worldview or the modernist temper is doubt about the nature of reality. Yeah. Is that fair? Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. Fair and I, I would Missy, agree. Go. I would agree. Absolutely. I think about, I think the word that comes to mind when I think about modernism all the time is fragmentation. Oh yes. Um, it's, it's like everything was fractured as a result of the calamity, uh, at the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century. And there were these fragments laying all around in. So there was a fragmented world and a fragmented man, um, this is the way to think about um, 20th century modernism. And you can see the effects of that on their genres. Their I was going to ask genres, that. Does that know? fragmentation show up in the work? It does. It does. Modernist authors, um, they write indirect, vivid prose that's very terse. It's very short, by and large. You get the rise of the short story in this period. Because their ideology dispersed or dispensed, there's the word I'm looking for, dispensed with any kind of unifying principle um, that would be necessary to maintain anything of of great length, right? Like, for example, an epic. (laughs) Um, They go to shorter pieces, and you get a lot of first-person narrations because of the subjectivity. They've thrown away the possibility of an objective truth that would make sense of all the world. And so now all they've got are these first-person snippets. And Emily's right. They distrust their ability to put those things together into any kind of a cohesive narrative. Even even so much that they oftentimes use kind of a marginal side narrator who is filtering what's going on with another. For example, think about Fitzgerald's Great Gatsby. I was just thinking about the Great Gatsby, right? yeah. You get this this marginal narrator who's talking about Jay Gatsby and filtering everything for you subjectively through his lens, but he doesn't really trust himself. He's not really sure he's getting it entirely right. There's a lot of confusion rather than certainty in his narration um, that really fits the mood of this particular period. Emily, comment on that idea of, of um, marginal narrators that are maybe, maybe doubt themselves or are not to be trusted. Or I mean, I know you like uh, William Faulkner, for example. How, does he, how do his works fit into what, what mom is saying? Well, in, in The Sound and the Fury, we have a disabled narrator who uh, isn't in his right mind and yet is narrating to us the events of the story. And so how do you process that? What kind of real, reality is he dealing with? It's it's what he's truly experiencing, but he himself is not in his right mind. So there's so one. you get these unreliable <laughs> narrators. So, okay, so he's unreliable for for maybe a multitude of reasons. Um, Although, I mean, for Faulkner, he ends up being the most reliable narrator, maybe because he he's crazy. Mm. Which is, very, that's a profoundly modernist thing to say, then, isn't it? I think so, yeah. Well, it, it, he unpacks the ways that we lie to ourselves about stuff. So are the modernists then, I and mean, we've only mentioned a couple, you know, sort of sort of exemplars of the modernist um, period in literature, uh, Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby, um, Faulkner's The Sound and the Fury. I don't know if you mentioned any others. I like Ernest Hemingway from this period, maybe best of all, although nobody handles the language like Fitzgerald. But, but I think the, the narrator in a, in a Hemingway novel, to compare that idea to... Fitzgerald and Faulkner is maybe not unreliable, but he is, he's weak 
in a way maybe that that a protagonist or a narrator from a previous period would not always have been that he exists in a world that is that is formed and shaped by his own inadequacy or his own uh, injury or his own um, insufficiency in somehow in some way and and not only is he weak i'm thinking of just pick a hemingway hero from the old man in the sea to for whom the bell tolls to the sun also rises or whatever but 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 not only is he weak but he's defeated maybe even defeated before he before he starts and uh I wonder if that's one of the things that uh, that makes Hemingway an exemplar of this period as well. That maybe not talking about narrators so much as protagonists. The protagonists are not the winners in a modernist novel. Is that is that essentially modernist? That feature? You guys school me on this. Oh, I don't know about schooling you, but it it um, brings to mind this quote from an article about modernism in Norton Anthology. The writer said this: Writers before World War One had faith in society and in art. Writers between 1914 and 1945 had faith in art. Writers after 1945 had lost even that sustaining faith, and hence the faith in themselves that had inspired and sustained writers between the wars. So you get this gradual loss of all faith. First, faith in God. We didn't mention that, right? But this faith in society and art. And then no more faith in society. Now it's just art. And then no more faith in art. We have no faith in anything. We don't even have any faith in ourselves. And so we're adrift, right? And so when we're talking about modernism, we're talking about that second stage, right? Before the artist has lost faith in, him, faith in himself, he's still trying to do something positive with his art and, and something something verifiable or something something substantial, right? I mean, would Faulkner have been trying for an actual goal? Would Fitzgerald have been trying to do something substantial? Yes, I think they're trying to mirror the decay of society, the social breakdown, the condition right? The social condition, the condition of man, not the condition of man, the way um, somebody pre-World War I would have tried to um, show man's condition. For example, man as a sinner or what have you. But post-World War I, um, it's man's, um, man's condition at the hands of an impersonal world in which there is no objective truth and therefore no meaning. Mm-hmm. You know, so everything's kind of falling apart the old world is falling apart and the new world is yet to be, it's yet to rise out of the ashes if, if, if it's ever going to. This reminds me of a conversation, a short conversation I had with you one time, Emily, about James Joyce's Ulysses. And uh, you were trying to get me to read it. And you said, you really, you really should read Ulysses if you have time someday. And I said, I don't I, believe you. I would not recommend that anyone read Ulysses. Well, you told, you recommended it to me. <laughs> Now, I, well, I'm going to ask you on the air, why did you do that? And also, um, talk to me about what you know of Ulysses and how it is um, a, a symbol of the modernist movement. I mean, some people have called, this book has the, the, um, the fame of being called a demonstration and summation of the entire modernist movement. It's like modernism as a novel, here you go, James Joyce's Ulysses. What does that mean? In what sense is that true? Well, the... The reason I enjoyed the experience of it so much um, is that it is a giant puzzle. <laughs> it's the intellectual exercise that mom was talking about at the beginning. It's fun to piece all the pieces together and try to understand him. Um, but it is his attempt at creating the modern epic. It is very long and it is very disjointed. and Fragmented. Uh, very fragmented. And unusual for that period in its length, I think. Mm-hmm. Yep. And uh, I mean, clearly from the title, he's trying to hearken back to Homer mm-hmm. and, and experiment with what the epic would look like in his time. And the result is that you follow a single man around the city of Dublin on one day. And it's a very, very ordinary day. Mm-hmm. And there are long passages dedicated to very mundane experiences in his life. But on the background, uh, you're also seeing his relationship with his wife, which is decaying. They're growing apart. Um, and he develops a relationship with the young student, Stephen. Uh, and they talk and he kind of has like a pseudo father-son relationship with it, this boy. And, and the final conclusion of the book is Molly, his wife, has been asking herself if she should leave him because her marriage is boring and it's not satisfying to her and 
he's getting old and it's all very mundane. And in the face of the mundane, when she asks herself if it's, if it's worth it, I guess, the last line is, yes, I will, yes, I will, yes. So somehow even the mundane, boring, fragmented reality of our world gets a yes mm. from Joyce, which I think is really interesting. Wow. So why do you like Ulysses? Other than it's a, it's a big puzzle. and you, I mean, I understand that the, uh, the, the novel begins in the middle of a sentence and ends with the beginning of the same sentence. So it's sort of a big, long circle. Is that right? Right. It is. So it's the kind of thing that you read with a guide. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's a, it's, it's not your enjoyable work of literature. Right. But, but it, well, it is indicative of the period though, because you know, you get these juxtaposed fragments, right. That are um, just little segments, right. With shifts in different perspective and tone. And you do have to kind of look for some sort of structure. In the mm-hmm, whole. Exactly. Right? Yeah. The reader has to be the interpreter of meaning and structure. And obviously, I, I don't agree with the philosophical implications of that. But I think that if you're willing to hear some of the things he had to say, I think that they weren't, they were, they were so close, you know, mm-hmm. they, it broke open a lot of questions that needed to be asked mm-hmm. that hadn't been asked yet. And interestingly enough, made literature as a discipline um, really important because this quest, because everyone in society was on a quest for meaning, yeah. the, the quest for meaning became the meaning itself, right, in literary circles. And so, um, you know, people engaged in literature as an act of trying to find meaning does in that mean, this world. Does that mean that the modernist author... Um, uh, spoke for his people in a in in a unique way in this period. I mean, if what you're saying is true, then when Hemingway goes to publish a new novel in this period, uh, not only is he is he writing something for his readers, but he's writing something in their name. He's writing something in their voice. He's asking the question that's on everybody's lips. Is that is that fair? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's it's very relatable. I think as someone who doubts herself and asks a lot of questions and has a lot of anxieties it's it's relatable to look at the world and wonder what in the world is going on (laughs) i was just gonna say it seems to me if that's what's going on in modernist literature in the great gatsby or the old man in the sea or ulysses or uh, some of these other modernist books maybe that's fundamentally different than what was going on in um in the aeneid uh, you know, millennia before, where Virgil is actually is is stating something clearly and calling his readers up to a vision of of Romanness and heroism. And as soon as I got about to say that, I remembered my recent reading of the Aeneid and remembered that Virgil has as many questions as as Joyce does. Well, not about really what the literature is, what literature well, is I was, based upon. Yeah, anyway. I was going to kind of say that in in a way. Uh, Virgil's not talking down to his readers any more than than F. Scott Fitzgerald is. He's trying to speak in their name and ask the questions about reality that are on all of their lips. So I wonder if maybe uh, there's more similarity than distinction among all these periods. Yeah, I think there is. And, you know, we've got to remember that modernism was was an international kind of a um, a malaise, if we want to call it that, a movement, a malaise, whatever. But it was specified in different places. You know, you get it, articulations of modernism. For example, the Southern agrarians like Robert Warren Penn and John Crow Ransom and Alan Tate, who came up with New Criticism, those were modernists who actually were opposed to this idea of modernist fragmentation. And they didn't like the iterations that this had in, for example, literary theory, literary criticism. And so they came in and offered another idea. They were kind of shoring up the ruins of their art and academia with their own work. Anyway, it's it's very interesting to see. I think the intellectual currents in literature are fascinating um, because you, you can always see the consequences of ideas and then the pushback. It's like, um, it's like watching the waves on the ocean, you know, there's this rise and fall, this big swell, and then a, a pushback the other direction. So if that's what it is, if it's a, it's a give and take between periods, then let me put a question to you, Emily. Um, what is modernism pushing back against? 
or what is modernism responding to the way you read those those great novels? Uh, well, I, I think that it's drawing our attention to the fact that it isn't all as cut and dried as we would like it to be. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, and the realists were already on their way there, but the modernists wondered why we're so confident uh, in our ability to interpret the world. Mm-hmm. And, and so sure about things like heroism, you know, yeah. all the big truths and virtues. They're questioning all of that, of course, because objective reality um, has been jettisoned in the wake of materialistic philosophy. Wow, that's really interesting. So so, um, so pick a, an English um, a realist, the Victorian Charles Dickens, who who writes novels of uh, that have all kinds of conflict in them, that have all kinds of pain and sorrow and heartbreak and darkness, but there is a sense in which there are certain verities, right? Certain kinds of heroism are are true. A certain kind of protagonist is going to triumph in the end. And you can imagine F. Scott Fitzgerald in The Great Gatsby looking back, as it were, at Dickens and saying, I got another take on it. And a protagonist is not what you say he is. And neither are the verities like heroism and character and X, Y, and Z. Well, and with Fitzgerald in particular, kind of regretfully, you know, you can see him lamenting at the end of the story, looking back to the West, saying, you know, we're always born back against these waves to the West mm-hmm. again and again. Um, I think of T.S. Eliot. Um, he, he wrote, these fragments have I shored against my ruins. And I think that's really indicative of what we see the modernists doing. They're shoring up the ruins of their culture with these little fragments, these little snippets to try to express the condition um, of society, the condition of the individual within it, um, the the problem, the great problem, um, the great void left behind that is God-shaped in this particular period of time. In the American tradition, after the Civil War in 1865, you don't get, I mean, we've talked about the realists already, I think, in a previous episode, you don't get the kind of... Um, throwing the hands up in the air and saying, all is lost, we have to forge a new reality out of the shards of a broken world, at least not as vociferously as you get it in the in the 20th century in response to World War I. The Civil War, in other words, doesn't produce modernism in the same way that World War I does. Even though there's violence, you mean? Even though there's violence, even though there's there's great destruction, even though the, the, the pillars, some of the pillars of society have have presumably been been swept away. We have to understand that they've got an interpretive framework through which to look at that calamity and put it in perspective. You know, they they say, oh, it was this in nature of man that brought this about. It's the will of it God. It was the will it's, of God. Yeah. It, you know, you, you've got Abraham Lincoln in his Gettysburg Address um, saying this was God um, effecting his judgment and his justice through right. history, right? Um, they had an interpretive lens through which to view all of those things. And um, I think Nietzsche in his The Madman goes a long way to explaining what would become modernism and the malaise that they felt. He, he said, you know, we've killed God. We've killed God. I, I did some reading it for, my, for a graduate project I was working on once uh, describing the, the intellectual climate at American universities between the publication of Darwin's Origin of Species in 1859 and the Scopes Monkey Trial of 1925. And the the research and reading I did showed a complete capitulation on the part of mm-hmm. traditional uh, Christian ideas and traditional principles of morality and of, of interpretation of historical events. Mm-hmm. Complete capitulation of that perspective. Intellectually, a, right? Yes, intellectually, right. Because people were still um, maintaining faith through emotion, but disconnected from any kind of rigorous intellectual um, tradition. Right, right. What I was going to say is that by 1925, um, at the centers of intellectual activity in America, there was no question at all that those old explanations were um, discredited. Those old explanations that God's up in his heaven and he judges sin and he judges the world and he has providential control over things, things that happen. Only benighted fools mm-hmm. held those opinions. And so to be an intellectual, to be a thinking man, to be an artist by 1925, included almost a priori the assumption that you were going to reject all those things. So add that, add to that the destruction of World War I and the worldwide flu that you talked about, Missy, and you can see wh- how 
the historical events may have may have been more formative in producing a modernism than say the Civil War was. And yeah. I, it, it's easy to 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 locate uh, Origin of Species as kind of a a moment when that process began. Obviously, it's hard to look back in history and say this is the cause of all things that came after. That's a logical fallacy, but but it seems to be significant. It's interesting because. Uh... It seems that if those realities were able to be bowled over so quickly, then maybe they weren't very strongly rooted in the first place uh, if they were so easily done away yeah. with. Yeah. Or at least not understood. Um, but if we hadn't had modernism, we wouldn't have gotten Flannery O'Connor, mm-hmm. who who wrestled with the faith in a new way because of the questions that were raised. And that's why I think that the questions were worthwhile. Someone had to to address the question of what happens when it doesn't appear that any of these realities are, are true. Oh, that's a great idea. I mean, that the, the idea that, that um, uh, maybe those questions are always relevant and nobody thought to ask them before world war one, mm-hmm. right. Or they weren't being asked as broadly or widely as they could have been. Well, with absent the, those the changes. kind of intellectual rigor that was necessary. I, mean, I feel like um, Christianity, ro- well, Christians as a whole rolled over during the Scopes Monkey trial, um, and gave away the playing field by accepting the presuppositions of, um, of, of those that they were arguing with. And as a result, Christianity was relegated to a world of feeling and personal opinion and taken out of a realm of factuality. And I, I agree, Flannery O'Connor came back on the other side, as did other authors in her tradition, um, asking well, those questions with new intellectual rigor and coming up with some really compelling answers. That brings up another question. Then it sounds like the way we're talking that modernism is the is the fruit of a disaster, and the modernist literature is disastrous fruit of a disaster. And it woe betide us all that the modernist period happened. Except we began by both of you by saying. Uh, modernist is, those are some of my favorite books to A, read and B, study. So I'm going to give you both a chance to um, to uh, give an apology for modernist literature and to suggest why we should read it and we should read it with great relish. Emily, you first. Well, I've been hinting at my answer the whole time, but I think that the questions that they ask are questions that are truly worthwhile asking yourself and they lead to a better understanding of the self. I think they were very honest about the human condition and the problems that we find ourselves in, um, and our own weakness and the weakness of human nature. Mm. And I think those things are worth wrestling through. Were they some good artists too, by the way? Oh my goodness. They're the best. (laughs) And why do you say that? Well, I love the tendency to pare down language to Mm -hmm. its absolute most poetic bare roots that there's, they only use whatever words are most necessary and they have to be very good words. Mm-hmm. I think of that famous villanelle by Dylan Thomas, uh, do not go gentle into that good night mm-hmm. and how the, how the, the language of the poem is so intricate and so tightly constructed and fit together. And so it's beautiful, but then also the thing that it's saying, the theme that it's trying to explicate, um, talks, it draws on all these things we've been talking about today that that unease and that despair in the face of encroaching night that there aren't really any um any foundational principles to interpret or deal with and nothing left for the protagonist to do but but rage uh asking the questions uh, as you said Emily that really need to be asked beautiful um, uh Missy what about you well why do we read history why do we study history it's important to know what came before, right? So that we can better understand where we are now. Um, I think that's true when we study an intellectual history as well, because um, like it or not, this particular period of thought uh, and the things that were written in it to express it and to explain it make up the furniture of the world that we live in, intellectually speaking. And if we don't understand it, it doesn't stop it from being there. If we don't acknowledge it, it doesn't mean it's not there. It just means that we might trip over it. And in, it, you know, in a darkened room, we're walking around in a darkened room, essentially tripping over things if we don't actually turn the lights on and say, okay, what's here? And how did they get here? Where'd this come from? Where'd this idea come from? I, even things um, as simple as looking at style, you know, when you look at literature, um, you see styles developing, an ebb and flow in styles yeah. that 
frankly, when, when you're a modern reader looking back and trying to read something that's very ancient, stylistic things sometimes become impediments to your entering into the world of the author and understanding. You have to have some, some training in order to understand, okay, I see these particular tropes that are being used, or I see these um, devices that were common among the epics or what have you. Um, styles change. And I can see the modernist period influencing very strongly our idea of what good writing actually is. Mm. You know, the flowery language that, that, that preceded it, um, the, the long epic similes and devices from the ancient world, all of those things kind of passed away in this period in favor of short, terse, journalistic style you know, um, scientific novel, the kind of subject matter that was appropriate or considered appropriate changed in this time period. And when I was taking classes on how to write, these particular ideas, these particular subjects, these were favored. And why? Well, I, I wouldn't know why if I hadn't read the modernists and studied the modernists. I would only be aping the modernists unwittingly. So, so to, to distill what you're saying, Missy, if, if we hadn't had a modernist period, we wouldn't have strunk and white. Is that what you're trying to say? Well, to some, I mean, yeah, I guess, I guess that's one thing that I'm trying to say. <laughs> We've been so strongly influenced by them that we would be fools not to try to read and understand them mm. because they help us better understand ourselves, our current authors. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. That's great. I, the reason I like the modernists is because I am a historian first and foremost by inclination and, and training and love to see literature as a, as a, a mode of history, of intellectual history. And uh, when you're interpreting a particular work, you don't want to go too far in this direction or else the work becomes, you start to see it myopically as just a, a determine, deterministic feature of a particular historical period, and that is going too far. But a movement, a literary movement, actually is a period in intellectual history. And as you were saying a minute ago, Missy, it responds to what came before, it provides the questions that the next generation will respond to, mm -hmm. and so to study it is to study history from a different angle. And so I love to think about the fact that as, as heirs of the 20th century, we are heirs to a particular constellation of ideas mm -hmm. that arose in history at a particular moment and affected our, our politics and our economics, but also our art and our literature, also our, our modes of dealing with one another in terms of relationships and families and work and all of those things and religion. Our understanding of the self and reality. Exactly right. And so, and so to, to, um, to read and enjoy the modernists for someone of my age living in my corner of the world is to read and enjoy an aspect of my own intellectual and social and spiritual history. Mm -hmm. And so it's like looking at a family tree in some ways. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's taking the shape of the conversation, right? Yeah. And in that particular period for a guy of my, of my theological ideas, right? As a Christian man, looking back on the modern, modernist period, there's a lot that makes me uncomfortable. And there's a lot of stuff that, that, I'm, that I'm forced to condemn, a lot of content mm -hmm. that I'm forced to condemn. And my, my impulse is to look back beyond into some golden past where all those things weren't present. But the closer I look, the more I realize, yes, they were. The idiom was different in the 1840s than it was in the 1940s, but human nature is largely the same. And so seeing human nature create art in the modernist period is an analogy to watching it happen in the 8th century BC with the addition of the move of history from one period to another. So I think it's glorious to, to read the, the works of a particular period and try and put them in their historical context. And I recommend that everyone do that. Okay, so, so as we close here today, our little discussion of this particular period, um, favorite modernist work of literature? From each of you, you may have mentioned it already. You can re you can rehash a title, but you have to give me your favorite modernist work and tell me why it is as important to you as it is. Uh, I'll go first. Uh, my favorite work of modernist literature is *The Great Gatsby* by F. Scott Fitzgerald, for a lot of the reasons that we've been talking about already, but for one that I haven't mentioned, or maybe I have mentioned, but I haven't really geeked out about yet, and that is that in the that F. Scott Fitzgerald, in the process of presenting a tale of fragmentation based on a philosophy that sees fragmentation and that urges fragmentation upon the reader as the right way to look at things, 
even though he despairs about it. It's this modernist worldview that he has con- is convinced is the correct one and the proper one, and he's, and he's pushing it on the reader. In the midst of all of that, he expresses himself with such coherent loveliness. There is something about his use of the language that hangs together. It is the least fragmented novel in the world. It is so finely written, and the sentences belong to each other, and there is nothing fragmented about this work of art, I would say. And so I think one of the reasons it's great is that it embodies the contradictions of modernism. It embodies that that moment in between the verities and certainties of the pre-modern period and the complete fragmentation of the post-modern period. This modernism that's in the middle is trying to hang on still, even though it recognizes fragmentation and it recognizes the fact that the foundations have been swept away, it's still trying to make sense of all those things. And I think Fitzgerald's work does that, not just in what he's saying, but in how he says it and how his language relates to his structure. That's why I like The Great Gatsby. Hmm. I think this is a hard question because there are a lot of them that I'd like to say, but I think William Carlos Williams' The Red Wheelbarrow I think I'd have to, to answer that. It very was written in 1923. It's very short. So, um, he was an imagist, and this poem was an imagist-type poem. And it goes like this. So much depends upon a red wheelbarrow glazed with rainwater beside the white chickens. That's it. That's the totality of the poem, and it's lined out, you know. It's just a sentence, but it's lined out. And um, I feel like the poem itself is a fragment, so it's representative of the kind of... Um, looking that this particular period of artist is doing. And the image is, is very pervasive in that it puts its finger on the source of the malaise, kind of the loss of tradition and coherent values. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it puts it all together in this one little snapshot. That's why I like awesome. it. Awesome. A fragment even, right? Didn't you say that? It's a fragment, but it's a pervasive image that identifies not just intellectually or conceptually, but also um, touches the emotions, right? That's what images tend to do. It touches the emotions. So the idea and the reality of the circumstance come together to create a sense of loss in the reader, Mm. Uh, an understanding of what has been lost, what was riding on that red wheelbarrow glazed with rain beside the white chickens. Oh, I love it. You know? That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Well, I think if I had to choose one, the my first introduction to modernism was The Sound and the Fairy. And so that will probably always hold a special place in my heart. And I know that that's the one that nobody wants to read because it's a torturous experience to read it. But I once had a professor tell me that he thought it was the most Christian American novel that he had ever read. And why? And the reason for that is, well, it takes place over Easter weekend. It begins on Good Friday and ends on Resurrection Sunday. Mm. And the ideas that he explores are always very closely bound to the old values and that whether or not he he affirms those values probably not but that he always he leaves an open door to them and maybe in the same way lamenting the kind of stability that they they offered you know it's interesting in, in my reading about modernism one of the things that um that the and I, I appealed over and over again to Norton anthology. So if you guys go look these essays up, you may hear a lot of the language even creeping into mine, my own, because they they really shaped my understanding of this particular period. But um, one of the things that the author mentioned is that the one of the tropes that the modernist writer used was mythology, and they kind of lumped Christianity in with all of the other myths, and it was shorthand a shorthand way to kind of reference the jettisoning of traditional ideas. Make it a myth. Yeah, make it a myth, um, a thing of the past, right? Um, to, to reference the, the lost past and everything in it, they would reference Christian ideology. And I think a lot of 
modern readers um, tend to see the Christian imagery and illusions, for example, in Hemingway's The Old Man on the Sea. And they say, oh, well, he must have been a Christian, and he's making some sort of Christian statement here, but far from it. He is um, only referencing particularities from it and at the same time relegating it to myth. Well, I was definitely not saying that William Faulkner was a Christian, but I think to the extent that he plays with the ideas of it, mm-hmm. um, in some ways it might even be more true because instead of a uh, platitude, he's exploring the actual true theological ideas underlying it. And even if he can't get to the end and affirm their truth, he's exploring ideas like self-sacrificial love, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, faith and trust in the in the experience of fragmentation which sounds a little more vibrant um a little more i don't know muscular than what hemingway was doing because hemingway kind of drained the lifeblood out of christianity and said he held christ up as a guy who just had grace under pressure that's the best that we can hope to have so he was just you know he just uh, bucked up so the implication here is that not all modernist authors speak with the same voice. No. They don't all agree on everything, do they? Of course not. And it's interesting, you know, when we treat these periods, it, there's a tendency to consider everybody within the period um, in the same way, but they're individuals. I hope that we have given you a taste for modernist literature and that you will go and explore it on your own, uh, given this nudge in that direction. And that if you have any questions or comments, would like to participate in a discussion of this particular period, that you will join us online at one of any number of locations, centerforlit.com, pelicansociety.com. You can comment on the podcast in iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts. And we hope that you will do that. Thanks again for listening to Bibliophiles. And until we meet again, happy reading. Happy reading. Bibliophiles is a production of the Center for Lit Podcast Network. Find new episodes each month on the web at centerforlit.com, where you'll discover dozens of resources to equip and inspire you to participate in the great conversation, including the Pelican Society, a membership program for folks who love the Center for Lit approach to all things literary. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Until next time, happy reading, everyone. <laughs>